When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. We are off for the holidays, but in advance, we made you a fantastic show today. The New York Times' Nicholas Kristof stops by to talk to us about giving effectively and his favorite charities. But first, we talk to Rohit Argarwala. New York City's chief climate officer about what New York is doing to counteract the coming climate disaster. Welcome to Fast Politics, Red. Thanks. It's great to be here, Molly. Thanks for having me. I am very thrilled to have you. Tell us exactly your title because you have a fancy title. So I am the chief climate officer for the city of New York and the commissioner of New York City's Department of Environmental Protection. Yeah. New York is an interesting city. And in some ways, we're not that unusual, right? We're a coastal city. That's an island. I mean, we are a city that is going to be affected by climate change in ways we can't even wrap our heads around. Yes. True on many levels. New York, like most of the world's great cities, is a coastal city. You know, most cities historically grew up around waterways, which is why the challenges of sea level rise and extreme storms are going to affect so many people around the world because all of the cities, both in the global north and the global south, are really very much on the front lines. We actually can, sadly, imagine a lot of what's going to happen. It'll be probably faster than we think. It'll be more extreme than we think. 
but we've already seen a lot of it already. And the science is really clear about what we face. So let's talk a little bit about what we face. There are kind of three horsemen of the apocalypse that you could think about. There's coastal inundation, there's rainfall, and then there's the related issues, although you could have a fourth of heat and drought. So those are the four things pretty much every community around the world, if they're at all coastal, they're they're probably facing three, if not four. And as you say, New York has 500 miles of coastline and we are vulnerable to all four of those risks, in fact. I mean, what do you think is the most imminent? Well, I mean, imminent, uh, we've already had. We had Hurricane Sandy 10 years ago. Um, you know, 40 New Yorkers lost their lives to a storm that you know, is at the very extreme end of, of what people would have expected. Certainly, that kind of storm is exacerbated and made more frequent by, by climate change. And so the storm surge that caused all the flooding and, and the deaths during Sandy is an example of the kind of thing that we have to be prepared for more frequently and at an extreme level. And of course, when you're talking about a storm surge, it's over sea level. So as sea level rises, those storm surges rise. In addition, you know, both because the sea level is higher and because these storms are getting more powerful. So it's a compound effect. So that's one that we've already seen. I mean, this is a problem that New York is going to have, Miami is going to have, Boston, all the sort of coastal cities will have this. What are the sort of ways in which you climate people are going to protect us from all drowning? Well, let's remember, Molly, we're all climate people and we all <laughs> got to be climate people. There's a lot going on. And this is true. Many cities around around the world are, are doing a lot just to be specific to New York in the 10 years since Sandy. There are huge projects. Billions and billions of dollars have been spent. Well over $10 billion has been invested to protect our coastline. We do that in two ways. One, for example, is going on on, on the Lower East Side. It's gotten a lot of attention as well as similar projects in, in Far Rockaway, which was very hard, hard hit, and on the south shore of Staten Island, to build seawalls, literally to have those coastal defenses that if the sea level rises or if a storm surge erupts or takes place, it won't actually cause that flooding inland. And in some of those cases, the more dramatic ones, it actually involves movable barriers. And that's that's one of the techniques we've, we're deploying on the Lower East Side. There's a lot of work, though, that's gone on actually as much money, far more under the radar, which is about hardening our buildings and our infrastructure. Because there's one strategy for resilience that says, well, let's prevent something bad from happening. There's another which says, let's just make sure we bounce back from it. Let's make sure that nobody dies. Let's make sure that the equipment, for example, in this case, a lot of the work and, and NYCHA, which people love to complain about, but NYCHA has really done tremendous work on this. Explain what NYCHA is to those of us who are slightly slow. Not everybody's in municipal government. That's fair. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's what I meant. For those of us who do not work in municipal government, what is NYCHA? New York City Housing Authority, which is all of the public housing in New York City, uh, something on the order of one out of every 10 New Yorkers lives in a NYCHA facility. It's the largest landlord, second only to the U.S. Army um, in the United States. And several NYCHA projects or, or housing developments were seriously hurt during Hurricane Sandy. And one of the biggest issues was that when basements flooded, and it wasn't just NYCHA buildings that had this problem, but when basements flooded, a lot of equipment was destroyed. And so it wasn't just that there was a problem for the people who lived there while the flooding was going on, but for days, weeks, sometimes months later, the time it took to do those repairs, there was an impact. So when a lot of work has gone into hardening that, moving some of those critical pieces of, of equipment 
up to upper floors, waterproofing the ones that have to remain at lower levels. At my agency at DEP, where we run the water supply and the wastewater treatment for the city, we've done a great deal of that because all of our wastewater treatment plants that process our sewage and make sure we're not dumping raw sewage into the harbor are also, of course, right at sea level. So we have to protect them. We can't always keep the flooding out. We have to also make sure that they'll bounce back. Talk to me about what preventing flooding looks like more specifically. To prevent flooding, again, you can you can build a wall. Right. You can build a barrier and that's that's the kind of thing we're doing at the Lower East Side. If you if you go down to the Lower East Side now, you'll see that's the green zone. Can you explain that to us a little bit how that works? There are a lot of different designs. Some of them are literally just putting a wall up. That's basically building a dam. A lot of the work on the Lower East Side is around having it be much more accessible. So we're literally raising a park on the shoreline by something on the order of 10 or, or more feet so that it's simply a higher bank on the East River. And then there are some places where we can't do that. And there are movable gates where when we know a storm comes, because that's one of the nice things about hurricanes is you generally have some warning, is you can close these big gates and you create a barrier so that the water will stay on the other side. That's a technique, of course, that the Dutch are famous for. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. Cities around the world are embracing that. I mean, will that work when we start getting very large waves? You have to follow the science and the best predictions about what is reasonable to prepare for. I mean, yes, of course, in theory, you could imagine some infinitesimal risk of a 50-foot inundation or something like that. You can't, you literally cannot protect against every risk. Right. So right now, we've used designs that look ahead to what we expect rationally to be the case for, say, a 50-year, 70-year time horizon. But I think the planners who work on resilience, of course, we know the climate science is is evolving. We, We know we don't We don't know when we're going to end carbon emissions around the world, so we don't know when this process of global warming begins to slow down. So a lot of these designs are built so that they can be added to and raised if need be. So that's flexibility that has to be built in. One of the things you said to me when we talked was that it's not a question of which one of these adaptations we're going to have to take. We're going to have to take all of them. We're going to have to do all of these things and that climate is actually climate change is happening in a way that's much faster than a lot of us thought. Can you talk about what you've seen in New York that where you've seen climate change in action? Well, I mean, the the data is really clear on all of the risks that I mentioned. But I'm thinking about the microbursts and the stuff you were telling me about. Well, in addition to those coastal inundations, which got our attention a decade ago, you know, just last year, we really started to see a change in summer rainfall patterns. Uh, You know, for 70 years of, of good weather data that we have, the most intense rainfall that New York had ever experienced, which is how much rain falls in an hour, right? Because that's what really calls, causes flooding. Like long duration light rain doesn't cause a problem. It's it's those really intense bursts was around 1.75 inches per hour was the most intense rain we'd ever got for decades and decades. Last year in August of 2021, Hurricane Henri came by and gave us 1.9 inches of rain in one hour. And then only 10 days later, Hurricane Ida arrived and gave some neighborhoods in the city 3.75 inches of rain in one hour, literally doubling, more than doubling the historic rate. And of course, the problem is all of our sewage our sewer system and our drainage plans are all based on that historical maximum, 1.75 inches. So we've got to come up with an entirely new playbook. And then, as you were correctly citing, 
we've now begun to see a pattern of microbursts where the kind of rainfall that you associate with like the Caribbean or Florida, where every afternoon on a summer afternoon, you know it's going to rain, it's going to be very intense, it's going to be very short-lived, and you don't quite know where it's going to be because it might be rain over here and five blocks away, it's, there's not much rain at all. Right. We've started seeing that pattern in New York. And just last year, we had a couple of these uh, just this past summer, rather summer of 22. We've had a couple of these examples, one of them in the Bronx that caused a, a sinkhole because it actually um, the, the flooding damaged one of our sewers and, and the street collapsed. Another one in September that I, I like to cite because in one hour, LaGuardia Airport got more than two inches of rain. Again, blowing that historical record out of the water, but for Hurricane Ida. So LaGuardia got more than two inches of rain in one hour. Central Park got 0.15 inches of rain in that same same storm. So radically different across the city. Parts of New York that day, it didn't even rain at all. Right. So interesting. So, I mean, what are the other sort of things that are interesting climate sort of adaptations that New York is working on right now and that other American cities are working on? Well, I think, you know, in addition to all the things that are related to water, in fact, it, people don't appreciate because we, we lost 40 people during Hurricane Sandy, we lost 11 New Yorkers um, during Hurricane Ida, flooding and water gets a lot of the attention. In fact, and it's true in New York, it's true in, in most places around the world, most climate-related deaths are caused by heat. And the significant increase in the heat of our summers, longer durations and hotter, higher temperatures, which we've seen, is leading to an increase in deaths. And those deaths are concentrated among people who are older and among people who are low income because it's older people who are just more susceptible to the, the things that go wrong when you have extended periods when you are hot. And of course, lower income people are less likely to have air conditioning. And so during, during the pandemic, in fact, New York had a program to give air conditioners out to several thousand low income individuals who were at risk. And we are developing plans for how we think about cooling as something that we have to take as seriously in all of our buildings as we do heating. Yeah, that's really interesting. What can people who are listening to this right now in abject horror, I mean, what can they do? The first thing is that if you're worried about climate, as if, you know, when you're in a hole, the first thing you do is stop digging, right? So as important as it is to plan for, for adaptation and resilience, we also have to get control of our carbon emissions. Um, New York has been a leader on this. We've got a, a law that's going to impact many New York City buildings that are going to have to reduce their carbon emissions. Some buildings are going to have to make some real big investments to become more energy efficient and more carbon efficient. We've got to make big changes in our, our transportation system. So that person you're thinking about, I hope they're thinking about buying an electric vehicle. I hope they're thinking about leaving that electrical vehicle at home when they can and biking or, or taking transit or walking, whatever possible. Here in New York, we're, we're going to bring congestion pricing to the city, which will which will help both fund more investments in transit and reduce uh, the propensity to drive. So that, that's the first step. Can you explain congestion pricing and why it's good for the environment? Well, so congestion pricing, which is something that I was advocating for when Mayor Bloomberg was mayor and, and we've been working <laughs> towards in New York for a long time. Is a system they have it in in London, in Singapore, in Milan, and in, in Stockholm. Several, many other big cities around the city have it. It's basically a toll to drive into the most congested, most transit-rich part of the city. And so here in New York, basically to drive anywhere in Manhattan below 60th Street will involve paying a toll. 
And the idea is that most everybody traveling from anywhere in the tri-state area going to Manhattan below 60th Street has a transit option and they should take it unless there is a very good reason. And if there is a very good reason, it's not that big an imposition to pay a toll. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Will you just tell us, we're almost out of time, but just tell us what one of the sort of most interesting things that um, the city is doing to deal with climate? The most interesting thing. Or whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> I'll say that certainly when it comes to dealing with, with both coastal inundation and, and stormwater, we have to think very differently about our landscape. Traditionally, New Yorkers have relied on on gray infrastructure, sewers underground to get rid of our water. Over the last several years, we've started really to think to be thinking as much or more about the green infrastructure. And uh, one great example of that, uh, which I think may be the most exciting thing that New York City is doing related to climate adaptation, is our Blue Belt Network, which started on Staten Island in the 1990s. And, and basically, it has the realization that lakes, ponds, and streams, many of which we've filled in or covered over over 200 years of development, are great receivers for stormwater. And so DEP, we now have more than 30 of these in, in Staten Island and Queens. We're working to develop a citywide plan for them so that we have them all over. These We, we take either open space or existing lakes and streams, we connect them to storm sewers. There's a little bit, bit of filtration so that the water that runs off the street is, is not just bringing garbage into these places. And then during a storm, they fill up. And when there's no storm, they drain naturally and, and over time. And that's been tremendous. A lot of Staten Island is now much better off in terms of stormwater flooding than it was a decade ago because of these things. And they're beautiful. People love them. They improve property values in neighborhoods. So that's a that's a great innovation. Oh, that's so interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. So important. And I really hope you'll come back. All right. Thanks for having me, Molly. Be well. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nicholas Kristoff is a New York Times columnist. Welcome to Fast Politics, Nick Kristoff. Hey, great to be with you. We're thrilled to have you. Very exciting. So it is the holiday season and you do something very important during the holidays. Will you talk to us about what it is? Yeah, and uh, it raised a lot of eyebrows uh, when I started, but it's to recommend ways in which people can give effectively uh, to you know, some fantastic organizations abroad and at home. And, you know, I think originally there was some doubt about, you know, should journalists really be telling people where to give? And uh, it's been just a wonderful experience to make these recommendations and people have really responded. So I've just issued my 2022 recommendations. So how long have you been doing this? I think it's been 12 years now. You know, it's one of the most satisfying things I do because you know, normally I'm fulminating about health care right. or about President Trump or whatever, and nothing really changes. And here's a chance where as journalists, you know, we can recommend an organization that we've seen on the ground that really is making a difference and people respond. And as a result, you know, people get, uh, you know, they get investments. They can feed their kids better. They can send their kids to school. Uh, it makes a real difference in lives. So tell us one of the heartwarming holiday stories of a uh, charity you recommended that got a boost from your column. Uh, this year, you mean? Well, you could this year, but you could also tell us historically because these new charities are you're just introducing them. So I was curious if there are stories from the history of it. Yeah, I mean, in the past, one of the things that I've really come to believe in my reporting is the power of girls' education and the way that girls' education uh, improves life, not only for those young women, but for entire societies. And so there's a group that I recommended some years ago called CAMFED, which stands for Campaign for Female Education. And it is just so incredibly cheap to send a girl to school. You know, elementary school is less than $100 a year. And so tens of thousand readers really responded. They supported CAMFED in a huge way. And the upshot is that tens of thousands of girls got to go to school who otherwise would not have. That makes you feel pretty good over the holiday season. So tell me about some of these charities that you have on the list this year. So this year I was, you know, really affected in part by the crisis in Ukraine. I, I just, I'm just back from a reporting trip to Ukraine 
And one of the things that is striking is that while there are many thousands of Ukrainians dying, there are also many thousands of people in poor countries who are dying from malnutrition, typically kids, because the war there has raised the cost of fertilizer and of food. And so I'm supporting a group called the One Acre Fund, which helps farmers in Africa increase their harvests. And it typically uh, costs only $25 per family, and it increases their harvest by 45%. That means that families can feed their kids. It means they can send their kids to school. It can be transformative. And uh, so One Acre Fund is the is my number one pick this year. I want you to explain to us what exactly does this do that helps them? It's giving them good fertilizer, for example, okay. and good seeds, and in some cases encouraging them to try new techniques or new crops that might be effective, advising them on ways to irrigate uh, that will use less water or use it more productively. It kind of means something to me because, you know, I grew up on a farm in rural Oregon, right. and we always had... Um, extension agents who advised us how to improve farming techniques and improve crops. And in rural Africa, it is so hard. And, you know, they, they don't get that advice. So the quality of the farming elements makes better food, makes more food, helps children 40% better farming results, more food for kids. What other charities are you working with? And let me just add on, on that front that, you know, a lot of farmers in Africa that when they go to the market and buy fertilizer, the fertilizer is fake. And so they've spent their money and it's just a inert, you know, stuff that doesn't do any good. Or they buy seeds and the seeds are counterfeit and don't really grow things. And so for these farmers to be able to get reliable seeds and reliable fertilizer, again, is transformative. That was my number one pick. Another one that I that I chose that I really liked. It's called Vision to Learn. And the idea behind it is that about a quarter of kids need glasses. And if you're an affluent kid or a middle-class kid, then of course you get classes. And if you break them, then you get a replacement pair. But if you're a low-income kid, then you probably don't get glasses. So you're distracted. You can't see the board. You squabble with the kid in the seat next to you. Right, right, right. And you can't do as well in school. Yeah. And you, you're just labeled a troublemaker. Um, the kids in juvenile detention centers are disproportionately kids who need glasses, partly because that's when their vision problems are first diagnosed. It's really cheap to get a kid glasses. And, you know, if it's done in first, second, third grade, that is just transformative for their whole career. They're more likely to graduate from high school, to go to college, to get a good job. And the question isn't whether we can afford that. It's if we can afford not to provide those classes. And this group, Vision to Learn, does that really well. In 15 states, it needs support to be able to expand to the rest of the states. Okay, fantastic. Tell me what else you're working on. I'm a big believer that education is the best ladder to success for everybody. And there's, you know, there are lots of debates about education, but there's one organization that has really emphasized evidence and it's been subject to more than 50 careful studies. It's called Success for All, founded by some experts at Johns Hopkins. They're my third recommended group, Success for All Foundation. And then I also wanted in the holiday season, you know, there are a lot of folks who they may not have money to donate, but they have time. And so I wanted to recommend groups that people can volunteer for. Uh, so my recommendations there were uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, which 
you know, is a mentoring organization, does fantastic work, has uh, 30,000 kids on a wait list for a big brother or big sister. So I'm hoping people will volunteer. And the final one also for volunteers is called welcome.us. And it's to help people uh, sponsor a refugee from Ukraine, Venezuela, Afghanistan. That's particularly meaningful to me because my dad was a refugee from Eastern Europe in 1952 and a group of people sponsored him. And, you know, that was transformative for the Christophs. And I think it'd be fantastic if more people provided that kind of sponsorship for refugees who need it today. Can you give me a little sense of like how this year's charities are different from previous years? I try to connect with issues that are really, you know, important at the moment. And so given the food crisis that is affecting so many poor countries, uh, I thought it important to provide something that had to do with food. And, and uh, that was why I chose One Acre Fund, that I thought that will alleviate the malnutrition around the world. I think, you know, a child dies of malnutrition every 14 seconds somewhere uh, around the world. And that's in part because of the, the war in Ukraine. Likewise, given the war in Ukraine, I wanted to find a way to support refugees. And this volunteer organization, Welcome.us, would do that. But I also think it's really important to for people in the holiday season to donate intelligently based on evidence and not just on kind of a hunch of this feels good, this feels like a good organization, but really go with organizations that have proof of their effectiveness. And I you know, I'd like to think that all my organizations really do that. Can you just explain just for a minute or two why this was controversial? It's so funny because it's like <laughs> now we're so many years into this world. The controversiality of this seems insane, but it was right at the time. Yeah, it it really was. And, you know, I think the idea was that as journalists, we shouldn't be raising money for specific organizations or telling people what to do, that we should be dispassionate and covering the story, but not advising people on giving. And that always seemed to me missing a real service we could provide for readers that, you know, readers, they read something or they watch something on TV and they want to know, what can I do? How can I help? And we did not meet that need. We did not respond to that, that itch of people to help. And I'm really glad that it has become, you know, I think now routine for news organizations to actually help scratch that itch and tell people how they can help. That's very interesting. Can you just explain a little more about why giving is good for the giver and the givee? Yeah, we used to talk about, oh, it's more blessed to give than to receive and all that. But now we actually have evidence from, from brain science about it. They've hooked people up to brain scans and they have a little screen in front of them. And as they give money to various causes and as they get money coming in, and it turns out that people actually vary and that there are some people who maybe are a little more selfish, who their pleasure centers light up more when they receive than when they give. But for most people, most of the time, when they give money to a good cause. And the pleasure centers of their brains actually light up and respond even more when they're giving to a specific cause than when they are uh, getting. And, you know, I think that kind of fits in with what a lot of us feel intuitively, that we feel a sense of satisfaction and purpose when we make those donations and, you know, make a better world. Thank you so much, Nick Kristoff. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, I encourage anybody who wants to follow up to check out uh, ChristoffImpact.org and support these amazing organizations. 
That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.